Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be here with James Hassick, who is currently an expert with Renaissance Strategic Advisors and a senior fellow with the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He is also a prolific writer with books including Arms and Innovation and before that, The Precision Revolution. Jim, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Great. So I wanted to start by discussing something that we no longer really hear much about, which is the department's Better Buying Power initiatives. What were they, and why did the initiative seem to fall away? That's a very fair question, because this was a very big deal back in 2010, when then Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, a thing we don't have anymore, right? Um, Ash Carter. It was Ash Carter, actually, who started this, promulgated this memo that he called the Better Buying Power Memo. It eventually, we realized, becomes merely version 1 or 1.0 of this this. Uh, way of thinking that comes to be known as BBP, Better Buying Power. And the memo was the result of uh, the convening of something like 100 people within the Defense Department to think about how it is that the government could extract greater value from its relationship with its suppliers, defense contractors mostly, companies that see themselves as defense contractors mostly. Um, They came up with a whole bunch of ideas, and Carter and his uh, staff boiled it down to about 23 initiatives that they wanted to impress upon the acquisition bureaucracy were things that we needed to do possibly differently. So by 2012, Carter's moving on, and his successor, Frank Kendall, who will have the job for six years then, as what might be the last of the ATNLs, uh, takes over and feels compelled to roll out a version 2.0 of BBP. And the reason, uh, it seems, is that while there are some really good ideas about how to affect better buying power for the government, the implementation of some of these initiatives was a bit over-enthusiastic by the bureaucracy. So one that I wrote about back in 2014 in Defense ARJ, that journal, was the securing of intellectual property when we buy weapon systems. So this is something that the government has and has not done in cycles, in waves, if you will, for about a century. Really, we've been thinking about, we've actually been thinking about IP in weapon systems for about 120 years. It goes back to about 1900 or so. Carter in the memo writes, you know, we should think about securing IP rights. And this is interpreted by a lot of people in the PEOs and the program offices as we need to buy IP rights. He never said that. He said, we need to think about doing so, but the way that sometimes bureaucracies implement the guidance from political leaders, it was, it was almost like a switch had been thrown, and it led to some strange behaviors. This wasn't the only place, okay, in the BBP memo that uh, these sort of things started to happen. Uh, and so Kendall felt that gu- the guidance needed to be revised, and it was revised again in a, in a 3.0 version. I think it's a fair question why it was that BBP went away. Kendall will tell you now, at least I've heard him say this, that they spent a lot of time on metrics tracking whether or not they were getting a better deal for the stuff they were buying and whether or not they were staying on schedule. Okay, so we like 
keeping on cost. We like keeping on schedule. We like getting ahead of those things. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of talk in the memo about, about improving performance, but if we're holding that constant, then at least we're getting better cost and schedule performance. But I think there were two reasons that BBP sunsetted almost, if you will, or just sort of rode off into the sunset with the ushering in of the Trump administration. One was that it was seen as an Obama initiative, and there was just a reflexive desire to discard all sorts of Obama-era initiatives, regardless of whether or not they were good ideas. But the second one was that there was, there was an, there's an element missing from that cost schedule performance trinity that we hear talked about all the time by acquisition people. And I f- first actually heard this when I was teaching over at the National Defense University a couple of years ago. It was actually our college president who used to bring it up all the time that, what about relevance? Like, you know, you, you can buy a cavalry saber, you know, at the right cost, you can get them quickly, they can be just as sharp and strong as you want them to be, and they're utterly irrelevant in combat, right? So I'm not saying that everything we're buying is a bunch of cavalry sabers, but you can make the case that there are things that the Defense Department is buying that it possibly should not be buying. And I think that the Obama administration, much like the Clinton administration in the 90s, did not do, let's say that they did not tackle the question of how to structure the materiel of the armed forces, and for that matter, its organization. They did not tackle that question with gusto. And this is something that we're seeing, I think, more of out of the department now. Uh, They're, in a sense, less interested in buying the current stuff at a better price. They're more interested in actually figuring out what the new, new thing should be. Maybe that's actually a war-winning technology. Maybe it's a bright, shiny object that remains to be seen. But the Absolutely, the emphasis has changed. So we're just not going to talk about, you know, buying F-16s more cost-effectively. Right, yeah. I think uh, with the Army, you now see those six initiatives that they have that includes long-range precision strike and um, the hypersonics. And then I think the Air Force also kind of followed through. They now have, like, five priority areas. I'm not really sure um, if the Navy's done something similarly. But I think that's that's an interesting comment there, that in the better buying power, we seem to have just been okay, what's the cost and the schedule for the things that have already kind of been programmed into the budget and all that and just like execute those with better principles or whatever those initiatives might have been. And now it seems to be shifting towards, you know, what is it that we really need? How do we shift to the new, you know, AI and ML and all these other types of technologies that the department seemed to have been kind of lagging behind the commercial sector with in applying them to the Department of Defense? I I think that so, you know, th- something changed around 2015, 2016, 2017, actually more like 2017, um, in that we, as a, as a defense community within the United States, as a security community, many of us stopped uh, admiring the problem. Mm, China, Western Pacific, tyranny of distance, lots of highly accurate, fast-moving missiles. That's bad. Like, yes, that's bad. <laughs> we talked about it like that for years, right? Meanwhile, we were very busy building, you know, a, an army that was, uh, while equipped to fight the Russians, was sort of training to fight ISIS, which was a good thing. But neither of those have anything to do with fighting the Chinese or supporting that fight. So the Army and the Air Force, I think, as institutions are, uh, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force, in- as institutions are services that that at least lends some evidence to the notion, you know, there are big schools of thought about how it is that military forces innovate. And one of those is that that the, the, the sort of the civil military relations school suggests that you need to give, you know, you need some political leaders to give the military a bit of a swift kick in the pants periodically. I think the U.S. Navy is in that regard best characterized by, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's 
adage from his days as uh, as the assistant secretary back in the First World War that you know uh, dealing with the Navy is like punching a feather bed that you 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 spend a lot of time and effort on it and you'll get very tired but in the end it pretty much still looks like a feather bed because the Navy un, 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 until it's proven otherwise is going to do pretty much what it wants to do I don't think that's purely true but I mean it, we are seeing some some efforts to uh, to do some some smarter stuff I mean we, we finally for example have an anti-ship missile on the littoral combat ship that only took us 10 years to get there you know um, and a da- darn good one from what I can tell but we did spend an awful lot of time admiring this problem until we started, until we finally, maybe just about two years ago, started to get our heads around the idea that, wow, that is the challenging military problem. It's not ISIS. It's not really even the Russians in Eastern Europe. It's the Chinese. An important element of better buying power was also the should cost studies. And we don't really hear too much about those anymore as well. But what is should cost? You've, you've seen it come back around several times since the late 1960s when it was really kind of first introduced. And it seems to be one of these recurring ideas. So can you describe should cost? And you wrote an article about that. What, 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 what were you arguing there? Well, the, my argument is probably um, encapsulated by the, the title of the article, which I think was on the arrogance of should cost. And I was a little hyperbolic there, but let's describe what should cost is supposed to be. It's an an effort by the folks in a buying organization. Now, that could be the U.S. Department of Defense. It could be any other defense ministry. It could be Ford Motor Company. Trying to figure out, I need to buy a complex thing. Okay, if you or I want to go buy a ballpoint pen, we don't spend any time thinking really about how much should that ballpoint pen cost? Do I like the margin that that guy is getting making me a ballpoint pen or do, do I think it should be three cents less? You know, we, one of the reasons we don't do this is because there's a pretty competitive market for these things. So you figure if there's a pretty competitive market and things are to a certain extent being bought on price, excuse me, they're being sold in a competitive market where there's only so much room uh, for any individual seller to raise price, then we can assume that, well, I'm not sure what a good deal is, but I'm probably getting it. But when you're dealing with an oligopoly, okay, which is the structure of many of the mark of the industries that serve defense forces producing complex equipment and you're dealing with products that are really materially different from you know from system to system to system i mean you know it's not like we can line up two fighter jets and say oh yeah well they're both fighter jets well yeah that's that's the most superficial interpretation then it's hard to say well i'd I'd spend 100 million on that one but only 80 million on that one and here's why to get to that, you have to have an idea as to what's going into it. And so if I want to know whether or not, you know, Eurofighter or Lockheed Martin or Saab or whoever it is that's selling me fighter jets should be charging me that much money, then the thought is I should figure out how much it should cost them to make it. How much, not how much it does cost, but how much if they were doing their job right, it would cost. How much it should cost. So this is a notion that grew up in the, you know, under McNamara in the 60s. It was used a lot in the 70s, kind of went away for a while, came back, went away for a while, came back. It was reintroduced during the, yeah, in better buying power. What I meant by a little arrogant is that it suggests that the people in the acquisition bureaucracy know as much about how to build a tank or a ship or whatever it might be as the people who are actually designing and building it. And if you're Ford Motor Company and you're working with a supplier of brakes or suspensions or whatever it might be, you can have a lot of insight. And if you're Lockheed Martin and you're helping somebody figure out how to build a subsystem for your jet, you can have a lot of insight. But, you know, airlines don't tend to do this with Boeing and Airbus because the 
you know, the people who run them aren't actually typically aircraft engineers. And that's also kind of the case now about, it wasn't always the case in the acquisition bureaucracy. We had a lot more systems engineering understanding amongst people than we do now. When we did, this was a lot easier. Now, without that kind of talent, as I said in my article a few years ago, that's really hard. And rebuilding that kind of competence, if you want to do so, is, it, it, it takes decades. That was, a, that was a decision that we made in the 1990s, or I should say the Clinton administration made in the 1990s. Uh, it was, it's one to, uh, that, that will prove hard to recover from if that's actually what's desired. Yeah, it seems like the desire to outsource a lot of the production knowledge out of the government back into industry and just use contracting mechanisms as the control seemed to really start after World War II. And, you know, it just kind of over the years, it kind of like has this effect on the workforce. And you kind of start to see that now. I think the FY 2020 NDAA has a great deal to say about workforce improvement, right? And and whether we can get back there. Yeah, let me not be too harsh about, you know, folks working in government because, there, you know, there are some cases of spectacular successes mm-hmm. of engineers working in government actually producing stuff. So, you know, we forget that the Sidewinder missile, successes of which, you know, right. air arms around the world are still using, that came out of China Lake, the Naval Air Station at China Lake. That was an engineering project out there. The JDAM, while productionized by uh, Boeing, well, I guess actually first by Donald Douglas, but eventually by Boeing after the purchase, um, that came out of Eglin Air Force Base. That was a basically a little science project by a team at Eglin Air Force Base, the, the, the demonstrator. Of the, right whatever they called it back, the GB something or other. But, and this is something I wrote about a long time ago in my book. But, and then there were also spectacular failures. Uh, there's an awfully good article that, you know, you prescribe at war colleges uh, for students about um, the Army trying to figure out uh, exactly what kind of truck it wanted to buy in the 1920s. You know, hint, go ask the automotive manufacturers what kind of truck you should buy. Okay, <laughs> They know more about this than you do, uh, even in the 1920s when they had a lot of engineers. It's like there's a reason we have an auto industry. And so you have to be judicious about what you're going to tell industry you know more about. And it's not like we haven't had workforce improvement efforts. There was a whole Defense Acquisition Workforce Improvement Act, right, back right. in 2009. And, uh, but, but the trouble was it wasn't like we sent a whole bunch of people um, back to engineering school. I think that was back in the 90s, right, DeWea? I thought it was 09. But yes, it wasn't like, you know, the transition from the DSMC to DAU and the addition of uh, additional educational requirements for acquisition, people in the acquisition workforce. You know, Congress routinely almost, well, routinely in the sense of on a decade, decadal scale, gets uh, agitated about this and says, you know, we need people to be better trained, better educated, whatever it is. We pointedly don't send them to engineering school, as I was saying. We also don't exactly send them to business school either. What we do is we send them off to learn the rules of how it is that the government buys things, which may or may not actually make economic, administrative, behavioral, whatever it is, sense. They make political sense, but political logic is not always economic logic. Right. And I think that was the point I was kind of making. It seems that, you know, the government really wanted to, with its, you know, workforce and with its training, kind of decide, hey, this is how you should evaluate the work of contractors, and we want to make you competent enough to evaluate contractors. But it seems that, to some degree, the task of evaluation can't be really separated from the task of doing, right? And, you know, back in the China Lakes days, there was a lot more kind of development and hands-on doing by the government, which, you know, that still exists definitely in the early science and technology activities. But I think once you kind of 
cross over into the program offices when you're getting into real full-scale development, it seems that the government doesn't really have any kind of area where it's actually contributing to the full-scale development so much anymore. And then that kind of snowballs into, well, can you evaluate if you're not doing? Well, they've got a re- an expansive requirements setting function, right? Um, but then again, given the let's say the shortness of actual hard industrial experience by people in government, and by the way, that I mentioned that that's something that has you know that lack of experience that that, that could get worse if you know certain legislative proposals are picked up. People complain about the revolving door between industry and government. There are countries where it's it's almost celebrated, like France. <laughs> you know, right. there's a good reason for this, actually. Like, I would like people in government acquisition who actually actually have worked in the defense industry. Mm-hmm. I really would, and the reason I would like them in there is so they actually know what it's like to run a business. You know, run a factory, run a software development house, whatever it might be, and that they can get away from that arrogance. And I, it, it's not something that's even intentional, uh, quite frankly. Your boss tells you, "Go figure this out." You try to figure it out. If you haven't worked there, you haven't taken the course, you haven't, you know, the degree, you might not be able to figure it out. And, uh, and the results can be a little bit embarrassing. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Instead of setting up in-house kind of development or production type of competencies, you know, having that kind of flow back and forth between industrial knowledge and then kind of governmental knowledge. I think you see Ellen Lord, USDA and S has been kind of putting up a lot of these um, like a cooperative where they're kind of sending some of the government people into industry and then industry people into government and keeping them there for a significant period of time so that they can learn each other's roles. That's one way of going about it. But then you also hear about the the ills of the revolving door as kind of a, a constant problem that people are finding is kind of creating potentially issues in the, uh, the acquisition world. The reason people talk about that, let me, the, the model that we think about when people talk about that, even if they're thinking, thinking about it subconscious, using this model subconsciously, is that of what they, we call the Iron Triangle. Right. And now it, it escapes me whose book first used that phrase, but it wasn't. Is that Chuck Spinney? No, it was, uh, but it was, that's contemporaneous, uh, 80s. Well-known book, well-known article associated with it, but uh, the Iron Triangle is the thought. You know, the thought is this tripartite political-economic relationship amongst um, the elected representatives in the U.S. and the Congress. That is to say, the military and the arms industry. Mm-hmm. And so, the arms industry sends its stuff to the military, and the military needs the Congress to send the cash for, of the taxpayers to the arms industry. And um, the idea is that, well, periodically they figure out that their interests might align if the, we're talking about relevance, let's posit an irrelevant weapon system, proverbial, proverbial cavalry saber, whatever it might be, right, that's produced in the district of a powerful congressman and the company, they don't care whether or not it's relevant, at least in the narrative, uh, so they're happy to keep make, making it and the military has its head in the sand about whether or not this thing is actually useful in the ar- in, in combat, and uh, it doesn't really matter because the colonel or the two-star who's in charge of the program office just wants to get promoted, so that's the sort of the narrative. And by the way, what reinforces this? What reinforces this, the idea is that colonel is then looking for a job with the defense contractors, so he's happy to keep signing off reports that the cavalry sabers that even aren't, aren't even sharp, as the story would go, are doing just fine. And that's a good caricature, <laughs> except that you know, I think when you actually dig into the, the details of how it is that the politics of defense acquisition work, that is a bit of a cartoon. The first thing I think that we ought to realize is that there is one of these three that's in the driver's seat, and that's the military. 
it is true that there are defense contractors who would very much like to continue producing the stuff that they produce. That's a good business proposition, right? Rather than having to compete for a new contract for a new system, something that they and their competitors don't make, this is a riskier business proposition, right? And Congress is not wholly motivated, okay, we would like to think by jobs in the district. I mean, you have people, but one of my favorites was, you know, Senator Talent from Missouri, who was deeply, deeply into shipbuilding. Senator from Missouri, okay, let's, the people actually do care about things other than just, you know, the economics of supporting their constituents with industrial uh, largesse. And the military, as one, you know, four-star once reminded me, you know, we, we would prefer not to die in battle. We would like actually systems that work, you know, and that are relevant to the fight. And these are the guys who promulgate the requirements, and everything flows from the requirements. We might complain about congressional earmarks, you know, but that kind of pork is actually small change compared to the rest of the acquisition budget. And it's fairly rare that the defense industry walks in with a proposal and says, you know, and you will buy this. Last time I can think of that happening was the Predator drone. Guess what? That kind of worked out well, actually. But it was a case of, you know, General Atomics effectively threatening people in the Air Force that if you don't buy this, I will go to Congress. Oh, those guys who aren't supposed to care, except they do care. And so, you know, if the door evolves a little bit and there's some cross-pollination, talk about the human capital problems if you don't allow that. Then you've got, you know, stovepipes in which people don't understand each other's business. That would be a little weird, actually. Defense contractors who didn't understand the military and people in the military who didn't understand defense contracting. Well, the latter is a bigger problem than the former, you know, but I would not want that at all. And I'm sorry, don't we actually have, you know, already enough uh, restrictions in place to keep folks from, you know, working on the same thing they were working for, working on when they were in government? I think we have those rules, you know. So I don't worry about that very much. I wanted to loop back onto intellectual property, but first I have this idea that if you really are kind of like this liberal kind of, you know, open society where you're publishing more of what's going on and you're being free about things and then, you know, people can act on that, there's spillovers and and you kind of have this kind of competitive atmosphere. It doesn't really matter whether they can get the specs because it like not all the knowledge is necessarily in a spec or design. It's like in the whole human process and the network of the organizations that really matters. So you you just stay ahead. You stand theses from uh, right from George, from, from uh, George Soros to Fritz Hayek, right? <laughs> that, uh, now, there's a combination, right? Um, that, that, yeah, so the open society notion. But, yeah, ni- what the, 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 the shorthand is, yeah, 90% of the actual knowledge in society is not things you can write down. Right. It, and, and, and so... The tacit dimension. Yeah. So I, you, could, you can give me the plans to a joint strike fighter. I still can't build one in my garage. Yeah. <laughs> And if you can't figure out how to build turbine blades reliably, you can't build the engine, and you're going to be overhauling the thing every 200 flight hours. Mm -hmm. So good luck with that. Yeah, I think uh, you also hear, I think Dr. William Roper kind of talks about this a lot, that it's really, it's not about necessarily any given state of technology, but it's really your ability to adapt and be agile and then like, and I think you saw that very well in, in World War II, where it's like this constant back and forth of, okay, now they have a system that's doing X, and so we have to counter with Y. And it's not just, there's just one static kind of technological dimension that you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of fighting against. Well, let me say that it was remarkable in France in 1940, the Germans actually in a lot of ways had inferior technology, mm-hmm. okay? At least their tank corps. I mean, you know, they're driving around with, you know, Panzer 1s and Panzer 2s. And 
the, these are these are markedly inferior to the Matildas and the uh, the Charwin beasts that you know the Brits and the French are driving, right? Right. They're remarkably inferior to the tanks, the Matildas and the Charwin beasts that the British and the French armies are driving. But they have an operational concept. They have they have doctrine. They have training. They have you know all the soft stuff that enables them to hideously outperform you know their enemies. And eventually they start building better stuff, but they can't actually get it to work reliably because they have legion industrial organizational problems and remarkably in the relationship between German industry and the Wehrmacht. It's a bad relationship. It's fraught with all sorts of tension. It's one in which the military thought that they really needed to be far more in the driver's seat than they were. This was very different than the relationship in the U.S. or the U.K., where it was considerably looser in the U.K. uh, and and yet more decoupled in the U.S., where where industry could actually come and honestly tell you what it was that we could accomplish on what kind of a time frame, right? And so when, when the battle moves from the Battle of France to the Battle of Britain, and it moves from the land to the air, and we see a, a technological competition not just between uh, different types of aircraft, but different types of radioelectric navigational warfare systems. Okay, the Battle of the Beams, it's the Brits who trounce them, frankly, right? Now, that gets into a whole other question about, you know, the, the actual efficacy of so-called strategic bombing in the Second World War, and let's not go there. But it was very clear that, you know, they, they figured out... Um, they figured out whether they figured out how to find Hamburg at night or they figured out how to find U-boats in the Bay of Biscay in bad weather. They were doing it far better than the, than the Germans were. Yeah. But what was that topic you wanted to loop back on to? Yeah. So I wanted to loop back on, and you, you briefly touched on this, the intellectual property. Oh, um, yes. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what happens when government doesn't buy intellectual property? And, you know, I hear a lot about all these strategies for technical data packages and intellectual property, but I don't really hear much about how to think about pricing that, especially when you're upfront ahead of a development, right? So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I think that I should provide a little bit of background about what maybe what we mean by intellectual property rights in the sure. government context, right? So you say technical data packages. So that's the actual technical data behind a weapon system, okay? So whether it's a, a beam bombing system or it's uh, a jet engine or whatever it might be, there is a specification, there is some codifiable knowledge that I can write down that is protected either as a trade secret or maybe as something patentable that is, you know, rights are legally ascribed to the guy who created it. In theory, you know, the defense contractor or aerospace firm or whoever it might be, or Tony Stark, whoever it might be, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, it's my Iron Man suit, right? And the rights to the package, the data package, the TDP, we can describe as the TDP. R's. And these are actually two different things. So I could have the rights without having the actual data. That's not very helpful. I could have the data, but have very limited rights in how to use it. So what we taught, what we're thinking about when we're thinking about what kind of intellectual property the government needs, defense forces need, we're generally talking about, well, let's assume that they've got access to the data, because if they don't have access to that, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. The, the companies with whom they do business have an incentive to ensure that the government guards their data. They really don't want the government showing their data to their competitors. We've heard some stories about how this has happened. It happens because you've got a well-meaning bureaucrat who doesn't really understand the concept of IP rights and why they're important, right? 
that's something that shouldn't happen. But if you can control for that, then the next question is, what do I want to buy? And why do I want to buy it? So why do I need to have a right to use the data? Well, if I want to repair that weapon system, if I want to modify that weapon system, if I want to buy that weapon system again, and I want to buy the same thing, and I don't necessarily want to go back to the same guy who made it for me. So these are different, these are different degrees of rights, right? I want to repair it. Well, that's like Ford Motor Company selling me a car and then not selling the technical manual. That means that when I buy it from Acme Armaments, um, they're telling me that, well, I'll sell you this thing, but you're going to have to ha come back to me every time you want to you know, change the oil. That seems like a militarily infeasible requirement you know, on an operational basis. Let's not do that. And industry you know, loves to make money, as they should, uh, off sustainment, but that's, that's a bit of a, a bridge too far. There's a question about modification. You know, I developed something, maybe I developed it on my own dime. If I did, then arguably that the rights to that should accrue to me. If somebody's going to want to make something out of it, you know, uh, do a hack on it, so to speak, as we like to say, as the kids say these days, right? Then there's a little bit of tension between the originator of the technology and somebody who wants to riff on it. But that's something that happens in the world all the time. So I can maybe secure some limited rights to actually, you know, it, it, get in and tinker with the black box, decode the, dec uh, if you will, decompile the code. Why does government want this? Well, as we've seen from projects like the Air Force's Kessel Run operation up in Boston, you know, when you don't have to go back to the original hardware guy maybe in order to hack the software and do some clever stuff with it, as long as they're not going to tell you that I avoided the warranty or whatever it might be, um, smart people in uniform can actually do some really impressive stuff sort of at the deck plate or the, the flight line level. And that's another reason you want to get access. Then there's a rebuy. So one of the troubles that and I think the we've seen this in particular, my hypothesis is, with, um, with military trucks since the end of the Cold War, that in some cases the Army or the Marine Corps in this country have said, you know, we need to buy a truck. We love that truck from Navistar or Oshkosh or BA Systems or whoever it might be. Uh, let's buy that truck. Okay, well, um, should we buy the rights to the design? Oh, it's just a truck, right? Yeah, it's just a truck. Well, I didn't buy the rights to the design of the Subaru that's in my driveway, right? right. So why would I do that? Well, okay, that kind of makes sense until you decide 10 years from now, I need some more of those trucks. Well, let's go buy some new trucks. No, 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 I want those trucks. Well, you got to go back to the same manufacturer, and that manufacturer is now effectively a monopolist. He was, there's this beautiful phrase that w the economist William Rogerson from Northwestern has about it, that you know, he has effectively transformed himself from a, a bidding supplicant into a, 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 a petty monopolist <laughs> in, in, in getting you to buy his one thing because you want a pure fleet in combat so you don't have to try to figure out, oh my gosh, which oil filter do I need? Is it that truck or the other truck? It's just the truck. Well, do you think that he's going to give you a competitive price? No, he's not going to give you a, you know, Microsoft software monopolist price, but he is going to give you, you know, a regulated monopolist's price, which we shouldn't think is lower than the competitive price because of the problems of, you know, monopoly regulation. And that's the biggest problem, probably. And it's not just then on the entire system, but it can also be on the whole stream of repair parts. Because if you want the truck builder certified repair part, you might have to buy it through him. 
Now, there was a big movement about, you know, 10 years ago, 8, 9, 10 years ago by the Defense Logistics Agency to try to look for alternative sources of parts, and they made some progress there, but not as much progress as you might have hoped for. The Army's still frustrated with this, and they're taking a look at it. So that gets to them the question of pricing. Absolutely. I, I think that maybe I need these rights. But how much I'm willing to pay is substantially a matter of how much the seller is willing to lose because he's effectively a monopolist position. So I have to promise him something up front that will induce him to forego profits later. Well, there is the, you know, the, the government's got a pretty big regulatory bat. On the other hand, the government's uh, ability to swing that bat is somewhat constrained by its own relatively sclerotic bureaucratic processes, by congressmen who don't want to see, you know, defense contractors in their home states beaten up too badly. But it's, uh, and so it's not always a, a regulatory stick that you can wield. You do have an interesting, at least theoretically speaking, you have an interesting um, uh, carrot you can offer as well, and that is that the government's discount rate is really, really low. I mean, it's effectively zero <laughs> when you get down to it. And even with it, it just sort of historically, bizarrely low uh, interest rates, that's not true about industry. You know, industry actually has a discount rate for any given project that it thinks about. So if there's a significantly different discount rate between industry and the government, then industry will discount future potential profits at a much higher rate than the government will discount future potential costs or future almost certain costs. And so this provides an inducement for government for industry to get paid up front for its rights at a reasonable price. Now, what turns out to be reasonable, that's subject to negotiation and you know there's a whole lot of thinking about what, you know, what a negotiated price ought to be between, you know, two consenting adults. So this is a let me put it this way, at the Center for Government Contracting here at Mason, this is actually a significant thrust of our research these days. We're very, very interested in that question. How should you price intellectual property rights in government? I think that's actually a really good point. You know, I've always kind of had that theory myself that government's discount rate really should be zero. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I mean, they're not actually printing the cash, but it, we, we can make jokes about that, right? I yeah. mean, they're, they have really soft budget constraints and a, a sort of offensively high federal uh, debt. And yet, then we look at Belgium or Italy or, for heaven's sakes, Japan <laughs> or China, you know, people who are much more leveraged than we are. And we say, wow, maybe we have some headroom on borrowing yet. Um, <laughs> kind of scary. But, um, but even if not, it's just the matter that they have, there's, a there's sort of a certainty about the need for protection of the populace in the future that there isn't so much about, do I want to be in the military truck business or should I get into fried chicken? I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the you kind of brought up a, a good point that, you know, once you kind of commit to a system, then the seller is really kind of a monopolist, and that's a good position for them, right? And you brought up uh, this point that venture capitalist Peter Thiel said that competition in business is for losers. Oh, yeah. He described what, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Okay, so I remember writing that once that uh, when in talking about, about uh, competition in business. Uh, so if you're if you're in government and, and you're, you're buying on behalf of the military, uh, you should mostly like it. Now, I say mostly because you can take it to 
you can reify it. You can take it to a, a bit of a, a cartoonish stance, maybe. You know, God bless him, the, the late great senator from Arizona who had the House Armed Services, excuse me, the Senate Armed Services Committee. But when um, when he used to talk about inducing uh, competition in um, in the production of aircraft carriers in the United States, I would chuckle a little bit. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I understand how the economics of that are going to work out. Um, actually, they don't. So that's an enviable position to be in. Okay, you're a monopolist. You're a regulated monopolist. Uh, you might have a difficult relationship with your customer because your customer did some things 15 years ago that were maybe inadvisable, and now you're you know having to having to clean up the mess. But Peter Thiel was talking about taking a business, as the title of his book goes, from zero to one. Like there's not a thing, and then you have the insight to create a thing that everybody wants. And that's far better than, you know, setting up at least as, if you want to be a billionaire, it's a surer path to get there than starting a dry cleaner, okay? You know, there aren't many billionaire dry cleaners, right? George Jefferson in the 1970s, right, on the TV show, he, he, he was doing fine but that, with his chain of dry cleaners, but it's, he's not Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel invests uh, half a million dollars in Facebook back in the day and turns it into a billion, you know, by the time he cashes out most of his sales. Now. But I think this is not actually a, um, it's not a plan that works for the average Joe, you know. I mean, there's a reason we call some of these companies unicorns, right? You don't see them very often. And it's also something that I wouldn't necessarily, if I were getting into defense contracting, you know, ab initio as, as a new entrant in a niche, I would hesitate before I tried to build a business plan that was predicated on my amassing monopoly power. First of all, I'm going up against a monopsonist, right? A single buyer, right. you know. And if I want to sell to the Brits, the French, or <laughs> whoever else, I'm certainly not selling to the Chinese because uh, that government, you know, buyer, he's also my regulator, right? He might sometimes get behind me, as some folks at Rusi said once, as also my sponsor, but he's going to tell me whom I can sell to. And so he's got, he's got a very big regulatory bat, as I mentioned a moment ago. Um, the, reason, the thing that makes it easier in, in really commercial markets is that to a certain extent, you know, how should I put this? The, you will attract relatively less scrutiny if the product you're selling is increasingly frivolous. Okay, so Peter Thiel makes a billion dollars by investing early in Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I mean, I was at one point, but uh, for a variety of reasons, I'm not. And somehow I'm still here, okay? If you're selling, there are certain things where if you're selling to the government for as, as weapons, you know, it's life and death matter, you know, and social media is not, okay? There are certain things in the world that, that just are not. Um, and so it's great to get yourself dug into a niche like that, but it is awfully hard to do so in defense contracting. Yeah, it seems that one of the real problems there in defense contracting is that when you bring something from zero to one, when you create some new intangible assets that is kind of reflected in product design, something that didn't exist before, then the government will really want to be looking at your cost accounting system. Well, it's not clear what your past expenditures were and how that contributed to, to the current output, but I want to see like for every next item oh. that you're selling, yeah. I want to see what those costs are and I only want to pay you a marginal, you know, 10, 15% above that. And that becomes kind of problematic because you go from zero to one, you've spent all this, um, you know, intellectual capital and opportunity costs to go get there. And then it's not clear how you, you reimburse it as opposed to in the commercial world where if you had the better product, it doesn't really matter how much it costs you. Right. So, so let's say that, let's, let's stipulate that the, the development of 
if you will, a new acquisition manual for buying software was mm -hmm. a very important thing, right? Because even if you could, you know, you could tell people in the 2000s and the 90s and the 80s that, that no, 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 writing software is different than, than making a tank, okay? In fact, that matter, making the software for the tank, which is now a significant portion of the value of the tank, the economics are completely different, right? So, and, and that's a bit of a cliche that we have, you know, when we teach people, you know, talk about the economics of software, it's, it is totally different. Sort of like doing business with the government. It's totally different than doing business with, you know, uh, another corporate entity or with consumers. Um, yeah, I think it remains to be seen whether or not everybody in the acquisition bureaucracy has figured this out, taken it to heart. And it also remains to be seen, I think we're a little bit too early on to know whether or not the, the, you know, sort of the buying bureaucracy is performing well according to those comparatively new rules. We just don't have enough of a track record to say yet. There's not enough good research on the question. I mean, I kind of lament that we got a lot of volume of research on on government acquisition, but it's not like it's been, it's been, been a bit, a bit of backwater topic yep. uh, for a, most of the economic universe for a long time. 40, 50 years, probably. Right, at least in this country. I mean, there's interesting work in France, right, that led to a Nobel Prize back in 2014. But, um, Jean Tirole, is that it? Love his work, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think I, I, I called this at the time a Nobel Prize for procurement. Um, <laughs> and he's got, you know, he wrote a great textbook uh, with the co-author back uh, in the 90s that, you know, it's still sitting on my desk. But let me be frank, it's a little, uh, it is a little theoretical. And what we need is a lot more empirical research that's done to what I would call hard economic standards that is actually available publicly in economic journals. That's not just, you know, sort of collecting dust on shelves or virtual shelves, if you will, in the systems commands and in, uh, in, in the halls in the Pentagon. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the uh, shipbuilding industry. And so the FY 2020 NDAA, it's we're now in fiscal year 2020, but then DAA hasn't yeah. really passed. But there was a provision in there that many uh, shipboard components should be manufactured in the United States, and many of those aren't actually made here any longer. So that seems like it will probably affect the cost and the schedule of the new ship, the FFGX. What do you think about these Buy American uh, provisions, and how does that affect the shipbuilding industry? Um I'm actually not going to talk a whole lot about FFGX per se, and that's only because um, I actually did uh, I did some business consulting work around that particular question, Okay. perhaps for one of the bidders. But let me talk about it generally. I remember the first time I saw something like this. It was 1986. I was a midshipman in the U.S. Navy. I was on board a submarine, the Hyman Rickover for what it matters, but it's a Los Angeles-class <laughs> sub. Yeah, <laughs> Kind of a famous name on that one, right? If you're going to name one not after a city, you're going to name it after him, right? And I saw uh, an air scrubber on board that ship. Uh, it was made in Germany. Now, this was not shocking that an air scrubber on a submarine would be made in Germany, right? You know, the Germans, they know something about subs, right? Yeah. Have done, for about a century now, they've kind of had, they've had some uh, skill in that, in that realm. We didn't seem to think this was a crisis, okay, in the Cold War, when actually, come to think of it, getting stuff in wartime from Germany to the United States with, you know, 300 Russian submarines running around, Soviet submarines, whatever they are, running around the Atlantic might have been a little challenging. Mm -hmm. Now, cut that number by a factor of about 10. <laughs> you know, what it is the Russians can now actually reliably deploy on an even afternoon. And I could argue that the North Atlantic is probably a lot more secure than uh, it would have been back then. But we're getting ourselves a little frothed up about 
you know, our stuff is coming from overseas. And you can think of a couple of different reasons why people in the Congress would get agitated about this. So one was the jobs for the boys argument that I made a moment ago that yeah. what they care about there. Um, let's hope it's not that because that in the end, come on, folks. I mean, unemployment is, you know, three point some odd percent in the United States. And there are some structural problems there, but you don't solve those structural problems by handing a contract to somebody in whatever state to build whatever it is that was very cost-effectively being built in France or Germany or Denmark or whatever. A second possibility is you're actually worried about that security of supply in a wartime situation. Like I say, we didn't worry about this as much during the Cold War, so why we'd be worrying about it now, it's not entirely clear to me. Another argument I hear, though, periodically is one of, well, these Europeans, you know, they're not so into some of our military expeditions around the world. I mean, you know, we invade Iraq and three countries show up to help us, right? Mm -hmm. So the next time this comes up, you know, are they going to say, well, we're not going to give you an export license? I imagine that's possible. But I would ask how often this has happened in the past. And then the answer to that is hardly ever. When it happens, it tends to happen more often with particular suppliers who get angry. Then they get leaned on by, you know, their local national governments to cooperate with the United States because they're the guys who, you know, kind of guarantee the security of this whole alliance and the ones who pay most of the bill. And then there's also the question of, my gosh, what kind of crazy dumb war are you wanting to engage in this time that, you know, you don't actually want to ask, you know, the rest of the alliance whether or not it's a good idea. So maybe a constraint on your behavior is not the worst thing that ever came up. In general, I oppose these things because I think that any time you restrict the size of the producing industry geographically, you're going to lose somebody. And there is a lot of awfully good stuff that is made around the world that's not made in the United States that we really need to get access to. And as I was mentioning earlier, you know, I was saying it was a darn good thing that they finally got an anti-ship missile on the littoral combat ship. It's made in Norway. Well, it was designed right. in Norway, right? It's a wicked, wicked missile. Darn good thing that we're buying it from uh, Kongsberg because uh, that is a heck of a weapon. I'd hate to say, oh, well, we can't buy that because, of course, it's built by those hardly trustworthy Norwegians. Like, <laughs> what, what are we talking about here? Come on. Get serious. Okay, so I want to talk about a different program. And you've written a, a good deal about this, the long-range strike bomber, now the B-21. It seems to be a program that's been long in the making. It started first receiving appropriations in fiscal year 2006, and it's now 2019. We don't have a development unit yet. But it seems to be using mature technologies, trying to use some good principles there, high TRL. Can you describe your views on that system, the mission, and how they're going about acquiring it? Yeah. Um, well, let me deal with the last one first, which is the how they're acquiring it. Um, other than that, it was uh, handed to a special office, which is, I understand, filled with a comparatively small number of enthusiastic, smart people. The Rapid Capabilities Office? Right, yeah, the RCO, yeah. right? Which, I guess, headed by Will Roper at one point, right? Yeah. Apart from that, there, we don't know a whole lot. I mean, we don't, we don't even know how big the thing is. Right. Now, that's a technical question. It's not an acquisition question, right? But... Um, supposed to be a little bit smaller than the B2, right? Well, this is, is speculative, right? I uh, mean, the, the jet, yeah, so the, the scuttlebutt around town is that it's kind of a mini-me B2 that, I mean, I've heard some stuff that, well, yeah, it's tailless, flying wing. It's only going to have, uh, you know, 
one or two, I've heard it both ways, Bombay's instead of three or whatever. Sometimes people tell me this is a problem. Sometimes they say it's a very good thing because this is a doable do. I like those myself. Generally, if it is being built with comparatively mature technology, and let's remember, it's not like Northrop Grumman hasn't been off doing all kinds of exotic flying wing stealthy drone things for the last 20 years, okay? <laughs> They've got lots of experience doing that. There's a lot of reason to think that actually they can get this thing right. Mm -hmm. Smart company, a lot of smart people. They haven't had a whole lot of fiascos. I mean, everybody is going to because the government, the military asks for requirements that are not always in line, as we were saying earlier, with, you know, what is the, what is industrially feasible or technologically possible, like, you know, and, and can you make it levitate? Well, I'd, I'd like to, but because it needs to levitate. No, no, I, I can't. Got to talk them out of that periodically. So I think that all of that's very good. Then you might ask the question, why do we know so little? And we're told that, well, uh, for example, if, they, if, if we told you publicly how big the thing is, then the Chinese would then know how big the thing is, and they could start tuning their radars to look for something that was that big. Because as a former Lockheed Martin, actually, I think he was a former Lockheed, strictly speaking, engineer, one of the two. Um, Skunk Works guy once told me about stealth. Um, you know, it's, it comes down to basically four things. Shaping, 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 and materials. Because <laughs> we have to remember the, you know, the F-117, that thing was made out of aluminum, right? right? Okay, we make a lot out of, you know, the exotic materials that go into stealth aircraft, and they're important for radar uh, uh, absorbing, but uh, absorbency, but it's, it's the shape of the airplane that's, that's the, the foremost problem. And that is baked in the moment you go to a critical design review, okay? I mean, the outer mold line, that's what it is for the remainder of all time, and that that aircraft's in service. Whereas, I think I've written something about this in the past, that, you know, Moore's Law so far is still advancing. And when it stops advancing, let's posit that, you know, quantum computing is not really going to be a thing and that, you know, that's going to run out. Then we're going to spend decades catching up, rewriting all of that buggy, goofy, you know, larded up software that we've been writing for years with software development tools that produce millions and millions of lines of code where possibly only hundreds of thousands are actually necessary. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get better executional speeds, we'll do better stuff with software for a long time. Data processing capability, okay, eventually I'm going to be able to see the molecules that you're disturbing when you're flying through the air, regardless of how stealthy and cool and quiet you think you can make a jet-powered aircraft, right? Okay, so this is why we can't tell you what it looks like, how big it is, all that kind of stuff. We want to keep you guessing. So because we don't know a whole lot about what it is, we don't know a whole lot either about how it's being procured. I think I have only about, you know, there's, there's one sort of nagging concern that I've got about the program, though. And I say this because when I was writing about the B-21 LRSB at the time, I talked to a lot of people in the indu in industry off the record, and... Uh, several different companies that were interested in, you know, getting in on that project. And the one thing that I, and, and, but I would press them on stuff, you know, I wouldn't just ask like, well, what do you think? I'd ask, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Does it need to be this? Does it need to be that? And the one surprising thing I heard repeatedly from people in industry was, we don't know why they want to put a pilot in it. Like, why is this a man bomber? Now, this means that I am probably one of uh, exactly two people in town who, you know, have been beating a drum about this. Well, there's no drum to beat anymore, right? Because apparently, unless, I, unless they're doing a huge head fake with all of us, the Air Force, that is, it's, it's a manned airplane. 
The other one's Hoss Cartwright, who famously once said when he was, oh, I don't know, commander of U.S. Strategic Command, I've never seen a manned ICBM, so I'm not sure why my nuclear delivery mechanism needs to be manned, okay? Or maybe it shouldn't be a nuclear delivery mechanism, or there are a lot of other things we could say about it. You know, you've written a requirement that it needs to be. But there are all kinds of things that you do differently when you make a manned airplane than if you make an unmanned airplane. And they might have been able to significantly reduce the unit cost and thus make more of them if it hadn't been. I think it's a fair question that probably didn't get enough of a shake. And when I say that it didn't get enough attention, I would ask the question repeatedly, well, why? Why, if, if industry is telling the Air Force it should be a drone, why is it, I mean, you would think that there's now enough acceptance about this. And the most poignant answer I got was actually from a flag officer, won't say which service, that who it was, that I think the chief of staff of the Air Force, he said, decided that he didn't want to pick a fight with every bomber pilot in the Air Force. Right. So, you know, institutional resistance, there it is. You know, we say the military, and not just at the chief of staff level, but the military gets a vote in these so-called Iron Triangle discussions, right? So I don't know. I'm going to find out, I guess, in a certain number of years, who knows, when they actually roll one down a flight line, and then I can see if it's got a cockpit or not, if it wasn't a head fake, and uh, how big it is, and what they're going to do with it. And but, you know, do we need a law? Does this country need a long range, stealthy airplane for dealing with uh, enemies that might be coming from a long distance? There's a pretty arguable case for that, yeah. So, I like they're building one. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the cultural aspect is always an interesting argument as to why militaries either do or do not innovate in one direction or another and that might be because of the legacies of where the men came from yeah you know, let me let me expound on that for just a moment which sure. is that i think i can think of two reasons that you I, i've heard i've gotten two arguments for why there has to be a guy in the cockpit a guy or gal in the cockpit um one is that well it's going to deliver nuclear weapons and you get you know cartwright's objection general cartwright's objection that well my icbms don't i just had <laughs> two keys gone <laughs> hope hope we wanted to launch that so so you could call the uh reticence about unmanning a flying nuclear delivery mechanism sociological or maybe you've got a real sort of political operational concern about it and you can talk a scenario in which it would be bad okay i'll stipulate there might be something there okay the one i hear more often uh when people are actually like want to talk seriously about conventional warfare is well it's really hard to undertake the mobile targets mission without somebody in the cockpit. Like, you know, we got to hunt down those mobile missile launchers. Well, having a requirement to do something doesn't mean that you've got a capability to do it, okay? So our track record on this is really, really bad, okay? And I, we, we have no evidence that we killed a single mobile scud in the 91 campaign, right? Wow. Uh, that and, and, and despite a massive effort, you know, and yeah, 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 the technology's gotten better since then, but on the other hand, you know, enemies have figured out, like, you know, the Russians advertise, hey, we'll build missile launchers into the back of a s tractor trailer, right? <laughs> so now you have to go blast every tractor trailer in eastern China, and that's not a good idea, right? Uh, you're going to run out of weapons really fast with flying around half billion dollar or whatever they are, you know, billion dollar bombers. So myself i think that's a non-starter of a tactic and if it's non-starter you should, probably shouldn't be putting money against it one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is at least the survivability notion of an unmanned aircraft well that's a very fair point yeah no 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 it is um it you, what you have to do is you need to get the cost point of that thing down to the point where 
you get less concerned about um, the attrition. Yeah, right. You, you have to think about it as an attritable system, which is why early on in the process we heard a lot about, well, maybe it's not even an airplane. And what they were saying really was maybe it's a, you know, a, a swarm of, of cruise missiles that are talking to one another, or maybe they're sort of recoverable cruise missiles, or maybe they're. We heard a lot of discussions about you know alternative architectures. And then it ultimately turned into a bomber. Maybe because that's what they were comfortable with. Maybe because, yeah, yeah, yeah we couldn't figure out how to make that happen. Maybe because we didn't want to wait 10 years until we thought maybe we'd have the technology. I think there are a lot of good reasons for, for going in the direction of a larger, coherent, single you know, airplane. Um, but if I'm, looking to, if, I, if I'm looking to destroy infrastructure in a country that might be a you know, an enemy uh, at some point, and most of their infrastructure that I want to go after is comparatively close to the coast, then maybe actually a flying drone might be a good way of doing that. Uh, I, I hear a lot about, you know, I mean, if you're going to use a sat link for one of these things that our satellites are incre increasingly vulnerable. So yes, yes, like, we hear a lot about this. All inertial guidance or something like that, like... You know, like it, it might not be that so, they're just attritable, but they're right. just you, – you wouldn't even be able to operate any of them, right? <laughs> you know, it was back in – so I did a book. My first book I did was on – was on it was a, with a colleague of mine, uh, Mike Ripp out of Michigan State University uh, back in 2002. It was about GPS right. in uh, right precision revolution. And a guy who, um, who used to write tactics uh, in the Air Force told me um, that uh, – I shouldn't even mention which community it is, but he said, yeah, we, we loved your book. It was very useful for, you know, developing. I thought, oh, wow, I actually made some modest contribution here to, you know, the actual warfighting efficacy, the efficacy of the Air Force. Um, but I've also heard since then, you know, talking to people who actually know stuff about engineering in a way that I don't, um, is that, you know, that the chapter you wrote back in 2000 or so about, you know, electronic warfare and navigational systems, yeah, that's kind of out of date now. <laughs> so... What, this, the story we were pitching, you know, almost two decades ago was that eh, GPS is a lot more robust than you think it is. Yeah, that was true 20 years ago. It's mm -hmm. less, probably less true now. And because computing systems have advanced in ways that make spoofing signals easier than we thought it would be, right? And because a signal structure, once you put the satellite up there, a <laughs> signal structure is pretty much a signal structure until you refresh the constellation with a whole new program that you call GPS 3 or 4 or whatever it is, right? So um, it, despite having sort of been a GPS guy, I'm one of the first who will tell you that, yeah, the military needs to figure out ways not just to more lightly man its forward forces, but critically to do so while also getting off um, its reliance on overhead networks, whether they're for, you know, navigation, timing, positioning, or communications. And there's a lot of interesting work being done in navigation systems that do not rely upon satellites. Uh, if I were putting, you know, if I were in the science, one of the science and technology directorates, you know, there under Mike Griffin, or in one of the military departments, that would be a big priority for me, is how do I do navigation I think there are other ways besides inertial to do it um, that that r should get a lot of attention. And it should get a lot of attention because you're not going to get this kind of development from uh, commercial industry because the problem's been solved for commercial industry. It's called GPS, right? Yeah. 
or uh, well, I mean, it's called GPS, and now it's Galileo as well because that's providing some play that's the things European. in. Yeah, the European uh, analog to GPS was designed specifically to do some things that GPS did not. You know, give me a better signal in a parking garage, give me a better signal closer to the North Pole because the Norwegians wanted that, that sort of thing. So, I would be putting my money there. Yeah, I think, um, and that gets back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, the ability to be agile. It's like, okay, just because you have this system and maybe it relies on a SATCOM, then that doesn't mean that's the only way of of operating that thing. It's a a large, flexible platform. You can figure out new and different ways. Like if the enemy can counter one measure, then you can come up with another, and it's your ability to kind of like think through these things and and be able to to rapidly deploy them. We got really good at that in this country, you know, in the UK as well, uh, in Canada for that matter. You know, we got really good at this at that as allies in the Second World War. That said, it's not like we were really good at that in 1938. We suddenly got really good at that. I mean, we had the raw talent, you know, in American industry certainly, but also in the military as well to get really good at that suddenly. And unfortunately, it might be the sort of thing, you know, we'd like that it needn't be the sort of thing that only comes out during the pressure of war. Paul Kennedy from Yale has a great book uh, about this, about, um, you know, what what he termed the um, the engineers of victory, about the, you know, sort of the, what he calls middle-level problems during the middle of the war that were solved by, you know, middle-ranking people, some just basic sort of technical and operational problems that people worked through by, by thinking hard about them. And, you know, you see, you see some efforts at this from organizations like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, okay? Mm-hmm. And you see novel ideas like the Kesselman Project that I was mentioning earlier. I'd like, love to see more, um, sp- you know, there's, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting about, you know, the hacking for defense movement, you know. I'd love to see more of that stuff across the, the security community um, because it's not, the, it, is, it is still the exception rather than the rule that the acquisition bureaucracy and the requirements writers and whoever else it is, you know, tend to, can, can, can think that ad, in, in, in such an agile fashion. You'd like not to have to wait for a war to start for people to figure it out. Yeah. Well, it seems that I saw this um, interesting quote from uh, President Eisenhower back in 1959, and he was complaining, oh, these uh, large nuclear bombers, they're literally worth their weight in gold. And then, so I decided to say, like, okay, well, is that still true? So I looked up at the B-2, and and then I converted, well, the B-2 is about 150,000 pounds, empty weight. And if I turn that into dollars of gold, well, yep, the B-2 was worth its weight in gold. gold, The B-21 seems to be able to bend that curve. I mean, you're going to bend the cost curve, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it would have to go okay, like let's three, four, five x in, from where it's at right okay, now so in order to do that. So that's why <laughs> we're not going to break the cost curve, but or maybe we will. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment because I think you, we were talking about this earlier. But uh, let's give some credit to the Obama administration and to uh, uh, Debbie James and and General Goldfein and you know folks that preceded uh, about because we're talking about bending the cost curve. You know, how yep. can we do things more smartly so that we don't just surrender to the idea that well, when I go to version three, it's going to cost twice what version two did. And, you know, I start mm-hmm. getting these Augustine's laws, uh, you know, uh, end times sort of uh, predictions, which I was, you know, never a real fan of. But you're you're wondering, I, I, I've written some stuff in the past about, say, the Predator and the JDAM and the MRAP about this, that, you know, the, that that Augustine's law was, was finally sort of deep-sexed by the Predator. You know, yeah. I had, right? So, but let's think about the significance of this for just a moment. And we were busting on drones a moment ago, but if 
I like to tell people when I was when I was writing about the Predator, I did a, a chapter in a book back in 2008. You know, and there's a better book by Richard Whittle about the Predator and how it came to be and all that that you should read sometime. But um, we had Richard Whittle on the podcast. Oh gosh, I'd forgotten. That's yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, he, he's also he's done some good stuff. Very, very good stuff. I love that book. But um, the um, or was I Predator MRAP JDAM. If you if you had told somebody in the Air Force at the end of the Cold War, you know, in 20 years, um, your biggest community of, you know, lieutenants becoming pilots is going to be flying an airplane from a cubicle in Nevada, hmm. okay? Right. Uh, by the way, the thing is going to be driven by a pusher propeller, <laughs> okay? Straight-winged. I mean, you'd keep on, you'd go through this description. I mean, they'd laugh at you. Actually, wouldn't laugh at you. They'd look at you like you're just crazy, right? Um, and yet, that's what happened. There's, there's, there was this crossover point around like 2009 or 2010 or something where, you know, we were training more Predator pilots than F-16 pilots. Now, the Air Force had a clever way of, uh, you would think, oh, well, eventually, we're going to get like a whole bunch of drone generals, right? Well, the Air Force had this clever way of avoiding that because then if you put all the Predators into the same wing, you have one brigadier in charge of them. <laughs> so you got one drone, 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 drone general instead of having lots of drone air marshals or whatever you want to call them, right? Um, I'm not sure that that was actually that nefarious, but uh, there were probably some some sound organizational reasons for doing it. But sometimes when you've got sound organizational ideas, you wind up with you know institutional results that are less sound. Because I'd like a whole bunch of drone, drone air marshals, so to speak. Um, the, but the economics of this thing, I, 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 I've written some stuff about what I call MRAP economics or JDAM economics. Um, and it's, it's stuff you see in consumer marketplaces more that, that breaks, that not just, doesn't just bend, it actually breaks that cost curve, right? You know, it's not like, oh, well, my next fighter plane, my gosh, it's going to cost me $200 million. Well, maybe it's not a fighter plane. Maybe the next thing you buy is actually a drone. And maybe it's a 10 or $20 million drone that you, for with which you either replace or, frankly, supplement your $100 million fighter jet. Uh, and how does this become possible? Well, um, you know, I, when, I w when I think about this, I, I borrow, the, you know, the ideas of Clay Christensen up at Harvard Business School, and, mm -hmm. you know, when he talks about um, uh, disruptive technologies, and he uses disruption in a very technical, narrow, you know, self-defined kind of way, which is, um, you know, in the, in the Defense Department, we call, you know, the 80% solution. Actually, honestly, he's talking more like the 50% solution in some ways. It's just it's going to cost 20% as much. Now, how do we do this? We do this through what I, what I referred to once as selective relaxation of old constraints. So what if my bomb does not need to home all the way on a laser spot or a visual image? What if I just tell it to go to a point in space and explode? That's a coordinate attack weapon. Then I can guide that with either an inertial or a GPS. So those things are cheap. Like, you know, the original JDAMs were like $20,000. It was cheaper than a Ford Taurus at the time. At least that was the car people were buying. You know, it was the most popular car that year. Predator, you know, this is a, the original one was like a $4 million airplane. Whoa, <laughs> that's a lot less than an F-16, right? Certainly a lot less than an F-35. How do you get that? Well, it, it doesn't need to be jet powered doesn't even if you, once you, you take the pilot out of the cockpit and all of a sudden you can completely design the airplane differently right um, you're using them over non-contested airspace you know and that's what makes it really really easy but it's not just that it's easy it's important 
Because if you're flying over non-contested airspace and you're doing so, actually, I just saw something the other day by, oh, I'll, I'll go ahead and dime the person out. It was Re Rebecca Grant, you know, was saying that, well, one of the reasons that we might want to sell the F-35 to the United Arab Emirates is because they could be very useful in fighting ISIS. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, that's one of the worst ideas I think I've ever heard about how to use it, how to use a stealth fighter. Is like, if you're, there's all kinds of stuff that you're building in there for millions and millions of dollars, and there's no reason to do it if you're fighting people who have no ability to actually counter your airplane. Oh, and by the way, if they shoot it down, who cares? It doesn't have a pilot in it, for heaven's sakes. I don't have to go rescue the air crew. So you, there are things you don't want to do when you're going after enemies. You know, it's like if you're, we talk about, you know, the army repositioning to go after, you know, to, to help fight, fight the Chinese. You don't want to send a tank division, you know, to secure the Ryukus. You want to actually send coastal artillery. It requires a whole change in mindset, but if you don't have to bring your tanks, then you have to pay for them. So this is what I was talking about when I said, you know, the, that, that the ushering in of things like, you know, the MRAP. Yep. Yeah, the thing doesn't stop a tank shell. It's not going to. Don't ask it to. 120 millimeter round is going to go right through it. You know, so will a tow missile or whatever. Guess what? Insurgents don't have 120 millimeter cannons. You don't need it to. So if you don't need it to, you don't want to build it to do so. And, and, and as much as people would like to say, oh, well, didn't we get rid of those after the war? Actually, there are an awful lot of MRAP ATVs, MATVs, and JLTVs now running around the armed forces. Will be for a very long time. The MRAP's kind of gotten actually institutionalized. I think that this is a this idea that you you should selectively relax the constraints that are causing you to spend lots of money on stuff that you don't need to spend money on is is slowly working its way you know into sort of the backs of the minds of the people who actually do procurement. Uh, I'd like to encourage that. I think that's a really good point. I remember Clayton Christensen when he was talking about it. He was saying like, well, the disruptive innovation is just it doesn't do all the things that, that the existing things can do, but it can fit a niche need. And then there's a community that really finds value in that niche need. And then it's just on this on this like trajectory that makes it able to advance much faster than what the sustaining technology was. Mm -hmm. And in the military, it always seems like, well, the next program requirement usually doesn't seem like it's actually viable to get through the whole bureaucracy unless it's better than the legacy in every single way. You have, uh, it's something that contributes to what we call the follow-on imperative, right? Mm -hmm. you, you get a bureaucracy that has, that's set up to have a lot of veto players, if you have a lot of veto players. Right. And this is something that I like, I've heard, you know, Trump administration officials complain about, I think, very productively, is we need to have fewer veto players in the chain. Okay, so a lot of people in that bureaucracy will complain, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't come to me and ask me whether or not it's going to do this, well, it's not that we're not coming to you to ask. It's just sometimes you give us the answer and we tell you that, yeah, that's cool and all, but we're not going to fight in the jungle with that system. This is designed for something else, you know. So we're not necessarily going to let you veto our decision to do something. You know, mm, there's a problem with the icing with the Predator. Defense OT&E made a big deal out of this. Yeah, that's not such a big deal in Iraq, quite frankly, okay? Like, it's, yeah. yeah, if I fought in Norway with it, it would be a big deal, but I'm probably not going to Norway with this system, right? You know, that I think of is sort of the, the military bureaucratic analog to the other guy we have to bring in when we talk about this. It's not just Clay Christensen, but also Gordon Moore. You got a chasm crossing problem, right? So we can get this little community of really enthused people who, yeah. you know, I love the image of the first army jet pilots who got told, go fly the ME-262. Okay, you know, maybe we were loaning someone in the RAF also to fly the, you know, the, the Gloucester Meteor. But um, the old Army pilot wings from the 1940s had a prop on them, 
and the whole squadron broke off the propellers from their wings, nah. you know, to signify that, man, we're not, we're not prop guys anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what there, there was a big change in, in the Air Force when they started, um, you know, training uh, pilots to fly the Predator who hadn't been trained first to fly the F-16 or some other manned aircraft. Then you started to create a community of people who were actually devoted to that thing. Okay, you got that kernel, you got those early adopters, right, as we'd say in the, you know, the, the consumer electronics industry. Uh, but before it goes mainstream, there's this gap of people who would like to be early adopters but <laughs> aren't quite there, don't have whatever it needs. Uh, some more writes a bunch of books about this, right? He's made a, he had made a big uh, career out of being a consultant doing it. It's the, the, the analogs to how this works in with bureaucratic buyers are quite, you know, they're not, they don't quite work entirely, but this, the problem is still there. And that's another problem that we should stop just admiring, but actually do some hard institutional work about how to solve. The layering of the bureaucracy seems to have been a long since. Rickover would always have been mentioning, you know, the layering of the bureaucracy is such a big issue for him. And it seems like, well, once you go to one guy and he adds some requirements on, it's not a big deal. But then once you go again and again and again, and each guy has their own kind of veto power if you don't do X, Y, or mm -hmm. Z, that seems to just overbear. And you, you start to get some of what they call gold plating. Yes, um, I'm not sure that Rickover was not himself very successful at building his own bureaucracy. Yeah, very right? true. Um, but he was, was just pretty one, successful at keeping out the rest yes, of the Yes, keeping out, yes. <laughs> the rest of the Navy was not going to mess with his nuclear propulsion. Uh, definitely not. And, and they have a great safety record and all that. Although I still do wonder exactly what happens when you start putting torpedoes into those systems, you know, <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> in a big war. Yeah. <laughs> not really sure how that how that plays out. So, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I spend all my time thinking about, right? And and it's the kind of stuff that, at least the business aspects of it, are the kind of stuff right. that over the Center for Government Contracting we spend a lot of time, a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, sticking with the MRAP and the JDAM, you have the the you you kind of quoted that there's like a JDAM economics and a MRAP economics, and you're actually coming out um, pretty soon with a new book on the MRAP. Can you can you discuss oh, a little yeah. bit about that? Um, so the book uh, should be out next year at some point from Texas A&M University Press. Uh, they were good enough to pick it, pick up my manuscript. Uh, it is quite frankly a uh, an outgrowth of my dissertation that I finished back in 2016. I finished my PhD in 2016 in public policy at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, at the LBJ School. And my field there was military procurement. I, I was a guy who had come from a long career as a consultant to defense contractors. Uh, I'd written right written a couple books on it already. Then I go to school and I figure, well, you know, I'm a guy from a business background. I did my master's in business, not in policy. I, I love this field. I'm going to keep working on it. But I came at the dissertation a bit backwards. I mean, if, you, if you're a purist, you should think about what big, hoary, general problem it is that you want to solve for the world and then try to think of if you can't find, you know, a large-end data set and you're going to go with a case study, uh, first we look down on that, right, as academics, right? You know, okay, yeah. whatever. And... Um, <laughs> No, actually, I, I had uh, some good methods courses at Texas where people explained to me why it is that there's a lot of value in, in detailed comparison of, of cases or detailed analysis, even of single cases. You know, sometimes large-end studies statistically, will it, it, you learn more about whether something is true by looking at a large data set. But if you want to know why something is true, sometimes you need to go dive into a single case. Or if you want to know why something can be po might be possible, you better look at the cases. You know, even the exceptions, 
because you know all progress w what's that line uh, by George Bernard Shaw all progress depends on unreasonable people <laughs> <laughs> so you have to get a little unreasonable about well I know the world tends to work like this but how could it be so if you want to do something in a normative fashion I actually tried to be as positivist as I could be with this book as my dissertation but I wrote a dissertation I came in saying I am fascinated by the MRAP uh, and and I had there was some danger that I was going to become the MRAP guy, right? And, um, because this was a fixation, admittedly, that I had when I was a PhD student. It's easy to have fixations as PhD students, but I said, this didn't happen as I thought this might happen. What does it say? And I eventually backed into the question about this system, selling this system to the U.S. Army and to the U.S. Marine Corps and to the British Army and a number of other, you know, uh, allied military forces seemed to require a lot more effort than I thought would have been necessary to sell what I would describe as a life-saving system, okay? Now, there are all kinds of questions about, was it worth the money? Did we get it in there at the right time in the war? Were there other things that tended to, you know, uh, save lives as well? Was saving lives or was winning the war really what you were looking to do? Okay, lots and lots of questions. Uh, I can tell you just from the blast test data, that thing tends to hold up and armored Humvees don't. And so, okay. If you decide you want a more robust vehicle, so stipulate that, how do you get it through? So this was, a, it, I was trying to build theory and provide advice for people in government, but also people in industry. When, when you think there are, uh, when you think you've got a fairly recalcitrant <laughs> bureaucracy that does not want to adopt a system that you think is very important for the armed forces and for the country, what do you do to get it sold? So it's actually a book about marketing. Mm -hmm. It's about mar and, and, and the, the subtitle, at least the dissertation, you know, marketing military innovation is a little bit of a stretch because this wasn't even an innovative system, right? I mean, the basic design was pretty much uh, in place by the 1980s in South Africa and Rhodesia. And, and so uh, they were just emulating somebody else's already successful pattern, right? Um, sort of like the striker, you know, the, the Army Chief of Staff at the time, Eric Shinseki, liked to talk about how innovative it was. Well, yeah, the Canadians already bought it. So come yeah. on, come on, dude. Like, you know, I mean, they bought a different version, but come on, you know, the Marines have had something like that since the 70s or the 80s. Um, so I wrote 300 some odd pages on uh, how it is that that, pro that system got marketed. Now, usually when you say something about marketing to people in uh, defense acquisition, they sort of flinch like, oh, well, we don't, we don't want marketing. We don't, we don't want your marketing because that's about how you need to sell us another bag of salty snacks, right? And we're, we're much more sophisticated than that. That is a misunderstanding of what marketing really means. When you, when you go talk to a marketing professor about it, he's not gonna tell you that it's about advertising. He's not gonna tell you it's just about communications. Um, it's about the entire process, you know, and here I'm talking about, you know, talking about another Northwestern professor, Phil Kotler. I've talked about Northwestern for a lot for a guy from the University of Chicago, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so did my master's there. Anyway, uh, Phil Kotler's, you know, sort of expansive definition of it. It's, it's the whole process of thinking about what it is that you're going to bring to a customer and how you're gonna bring it to him or her. Um, and, and I was particularly interested in the processes of adoption. And I think sometimes looking at things through a marketing lens, rather than looking at it through the lens of, you know, the schools of thought about military innovation and how it is that military forces adapt, adjust, overcome, uh, was, was maybe more helpful in terms of plotting out the next time this happens. Okay, 
because there's going to be another war and we're going to be unprepared for something. We know. It's just because that's war. And somebody somewhere is not going to want to buy the next Wonder Widget that could possibly win the war or at least make it a lot easier, at least win that battle. So somewhere, somebody in the Congress, in the procurement bureaucracy, out in industry is going to have to concoct, frankly, a marketing plan to get that through the procurement bureaucracy. And that was the, the sort of, I was trying to provide the intellectual structures for how do you do that. So if you're a defense contractor, or you're one of those sort of iron majors, or you know, mavericks in the armed forces, or you sit on you know, a staff on Capitol Hill, or you're just kind of interested in this topic generally, yeah, look for my book about the MRAP next year from Texas A&M. Yeah, thank that's you. My, that's my pitch. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, mean, I think that's a really important kind of theme there. And it's not necessarily it's always like the next innovative thing that no one's ever heard of and how to market that. Oh, this thing wasn't the next. I mean, this this was not a, you know, levitating, cloaked up, you know, <laughs> artif artificially intelligent whatever. It was an armored truck, for heaven's sakes, right? It was pretty pedestrian technology at a certain point. Yeah. I think we could definitely use that even today, not just in the Army, but, for example, in the Navy with minesweepers, in the Air Force with attack aircraft. It seems like there's known systems with known requirements that maybe aren't the highest tech thing, but they need to be done. And for, for one reason or another... There's some resistance there getting it through. You know, I, I'd argue that, so, so whether or not we don't have to get into an argument about the A-10 per se or about the A-29 or the T-6 Texan II or whatever it is that you're A-26. Yeah, I you think know. Congress just forced them to buy a couple of them. So this happens, recently. right? Yeah. yeah. So that's what happened with Predator, though, was, you know, it was the, the it was Tom Cassidy, the retired Rear Admiral at, uh, at General Atomics, who ba basically threatened the Air Force that, look, you're going to buy this thing one way or the other because I'm going to go tell the Congress and they're going to make you buy it. So yep. why don't you behave better and, you know, we'll all get along and I'll make money. And, and, and but quickly, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, also, look, I mean, people in the military get paid too, okay? Yep. <laughs> like, it's not like they're doing this, you know, completely, completely as public service. So money has to change hands for anything to happen. But the Air Force does have an attack aircraft. I mean, it's just called the MQ-9, right? But that's an attack aircraft. Now, it's an attack aircraft for a particular mission. Yeah. Uh, but we're also probably not, whether they're Texan twos or they're Super Tucanos, we're probably not going to send those against, you know, Russian anti-aircraft batteries. So we're talking about a similar mission. There's a question then if whether or not you want to pilot in the cockpit or not. So it's not that the, I think the question is not, does the Air Force want a prop-driven attack airplane? The question is, does the Air Force want a manned prop-driven attack airplane, because they've already got one. However, I think your point is really apt, that getting to the point that they had one without a, cock a guy in the cockpit, that alone, as we were noting earlier, that's a, that was a huge deal, right? Getting the Navy to acknowledge the problem of, of sea mines uh, in a way that, that requires some more attention than what they call in-stride mine sweeping off the side of a, you know, a destroyer that's the size of a light cruiser, yeah, they could, I firmly believe they should pay more attention to that. And why? Because mines are going to, if, if they're not already highly sophisticated, they're going to get really sophisticated. Because when you start thinking about putting the kinds of smarts into what we could call an undersea drone, mm -hmm. okay, that we see above the surface right now, oh, Lord, I don't want to have to come up against those unless I'm actually part of a force that's specifically designed to go out and find those things and kill them. I dare say that the, if you will, you know, artificial intelligence revolution, we have no idea exactly where it's going to take warfare in the future. Um, we've seen other 
waves of technological, uh, you know, uh, infusion wash over the armed forces and wash out in ways that we didn't expect. We are often, uh, sometimes our, our big idea, you know, how this is going to turn out plans are not as radically different as we've always thought they're going to be. There are some constancies in warfare. You think through the logic on some of this stuff, and there are some scary lacunae in the, you know, structurally in the U.S. Armed Forces and in others. So I want to end here on the last question, that taking us a little bit a different direction, but back to the industrial base. So UTC and Raytheon have been proposed a merger. Can you describe, like, what do you think about that merger? Is it just another step in industry's consolidation? Does it signal something new or different? It's not new. It's, it's not new, but it is different than just another step in consolidation in that one of the reasons that UTC and Raytheon decided to get together was because they did not expect that it would be seen as a, as technically speaking, a consolidation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when Northrop bought Grumman, you put two aircraft manufacturers together. Now, that reduced the number of aircraft manufacturers available, right? I mean, Northrop mm-hmm. could make a fighter plane and Grumman could make a fighter plane. Now you've got one company that can make fighter planes and maybe they have more capabilities under the same roof. And by the way, that's not why they bought Grumman, right? They bought Grumman actually because they were impressed by Grumman's electronics integration capabilities. And that's what really mattered at Northrop because they had a lot less of that. Uh, when Lockheed bought Martin, you had you know Martin Marietta, you had a similar consolidation of, okay. Um, when Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas, you had, it was, you know, Boeing and Douglas were getting together and you were going from two domestic manufacturers of jetliners to one. Okay. Doesn't seem that, I mean, the net net on that was actually that, you know, Airbus was already kind of killing off Douglas, so it wasn't that big a deal. But each time the antitrust authorities, you know, here in the U.S., that's, you know, the Federal Trade Commission and the antitrust division of the Justice Department, you know, the Canadian antitrust authorities are going to look at it, you know, the European Union's antitrust authorities critically are going to look at it, you know, People around the world are going to look at this. And, you know, the, the U.S. and the in EU are the two big ones because a lot of people will take their, uh, take their signals from those two. The reason that I think UTC and Raytheon thought this would not be difficult was because they actually don't have that much overlap in their portfolios. It's not that it's a horizontal merger of, of, of two firms doing the same thing. It's not that it's a vertical merger in which, you know, I, I make airplanes and I buy the guy who makes my engines, which doesn't really ever happen, by the way, but that would be a classic way to do it. Oh, wait, like Northrop Grumman. I make rockets and I'm going to buy a guy who makes my rocket engines. There are problems with the horizontal because the horizontal reduces competition, uh, you know, across an industry. There can be problems with a vertical merger if we have a situation which uh, a, a practice we call vertical restraint which is what Boeing is accusing uh, North of Grumman of undertaking with respect to you know the the, the Minuteman 3 replacement right the the GBSD that's why they decided we're not going to bid because they they own the only you know d- domestic supplier that can pr- provide the rocket so they're gonna have an unfair advantage I'm not even gonna bother well we have a consent decree from the Justice Department that says that you know they're not supposed to do that yeah I think they're gonna do it anyway so this is Boeing saying, not me, you know. So you're concerned about that. The one that you're a lot less concerned about in terms of antitrust uh, is what we call a conglomerate merger. You make cars and I make fried chicken, and for some reason we think these two would be good in the same company. Now, that's a gross exaggeration, 
Okay, so you make jet engines and elevators. Oh, but you're spinning off the elevator part. And I make radar systems and missiles. And we think that this whole portfolio of stuff will be better if we put it under one house because we can cut the overhead costs of our headquarters. We'll have more money to deploy across the entire corporation for the most important products for research and development. We'll be able to perhaps find sales synergies because while we're making different stuff, in some cases, we're selling packages of stuff to the same big customers. Eh, that's less important with the armed forces because they have a very institutionalized buying process that doesn't, that's also very atomized, you know, in a way that say Boeing and Airbus as, as you know, provider uh, uh, aircraft uh, builders don't have. This is a classic conglomerate merger. In American antitrust jurisprudence, I've got an article actually in press on this right now. In American antitrust jurisprudence, this is not typically a problem because there's no mechanism in American law for considering it to be a problem. We're not reducing competition. The concern, though, that some people in the defense establishment might have is the same concern that Frank Kendall voiced back in 2014 when Lockheed proposed to buy Sikorsky. And Lockheed does wind up buying Sikorsky, of course. But here we have somebody who makes fixed-wing aircraft buying somebody who makes rotary-wing aircraft. Like, there's no reduction in the number of companies doing this. We're just shuffling it from one company to another. UTC, actually, to Lockheed. But Frank objects to the merger kind of vociferously. Doesn't get anywhere with the Justice Department, but he, he does you know, vociferously because he says, Lockheed Martin's a very powerful company. And I actually, as the head buyer for the Defense Department, he says, find this to be too much power concentrated in, in a single company. Now, at the time, the European Union's Commission, of, uh, the European Commission's antitrust authorities did not f see, the, see it the way that Frank did. But they did back in 2000 when General Electric, back when General Electric was <laughs> much healthier, proposed buying Honeywell. Now, again, two companies, they're kind of in the same business, except they don't actually have a lot of competing product lines. That deal back in 2000 easily cleared the US, you know, the US authorities, it easily cleared the Canadian authorities, and then it founded it was disallowed in Europe. Now, you might ask, well, why do two American companies need to go ask the European? Because they have business in Europe. <laughs> they could be required not to have that business in Europe. So they have to listen. But they said, this is a matter of power. And we actually think that that company is going to exert too much control over companies like Boeing and Airbus that buy its products. It's an interesting theory. It's one that has been repeatedly beaten down in the academic literature until just a few years ago when people started resuscitating the argument that maybe massing power in corporate entities is not actually a great thing. You know, there's a, a Yale Law Review article from a few years ago uh, by the title, you know, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. We all think they're very powerful, but when you look at them with classic antitrust tools, it's not there. So, you know, Raytheon Technologies, the proposed name for this UTC Raytheon tie-up, so far, we don't hear a lot out of Brussels about it. General sense has been that this shouldn't be something that should discomfort people in this country. But they did get what we call a second request. That is to say, after their initial filing, they got a follow-up of questions from the government about, yeah, we're not so sure about this, so we want some more information. That's the, is it good for the government part. I don't think there's a lot of reason to get worked up about it. I will also say, the value of the merger is not obvious to me. 
in that it, it isn't clear why this needs to be put together. But government should tread lightly in telling companies, even when guys like me say, I don't get it. Because I don't get a lot of things, you know? And I don't work at Raytheon, and I don't work at UTC. And so maybe they know something that I don't know. And, and their shareholders overwhelmingly approve the deal, okay? Most mergers, we think, you know, there's been some more recent literature that suggests maybe it's not true, but for a long time, all the literature was telling us that most mergers destroy value. There was a concern about that here on the part of Raytheon's shareholders, but they voted for this. It's their money. Let them give it a shot, okay? It's not like anything's going to completely fall apart as a result. Uh, heavens, it's not the 2008 banking crisis or something, you know, it's just two aerospace companies getting together and wanting to do a deal. I don't see the urgency for this, but then again, like I say, I don't see, I don't know a lot of things. So we'll see how it plays out. Jim Hasek, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. It's been fabulous. Thanks for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.